Hey folks, Jared here. I've talked about our feed. I'm going to keep talking about it. There are two existing C-Control feeds out there. Some of you may have just realized in the last week or so when that old feed sprang to life and suddenly we had 5,000 more downloads. But the current feed, the one that you want to be listening to, is labeled simply C-Control. It includes the phrase SimSex Flagship Podcast in its description. C-Control, SimSex Flagship Podcast, that's where you want to be. So please rate and review the new feed for us as well. In this episode, we have a pair of Swedes joining us, analyst and author Jonas Schellian from the Swedish Defense Research Agency and Anders Larsson from Swedish Defense University. They're going to be discussing Jonas's report on the Russian Baltic fleet. This episode was edited and produced by Jonathan Selling. Please check out everything going on over at the main website, simsec.org. We've released our next call for submissions for Project Trident. So if you're interested in contributing to the discussion on law of naval warfare, submissions are due May 17th. For more information, check out our website, simsec.org. I can also only give the strongest recommendation to the ongoing series that our editor-in-chief, Dmitry Filipov, has put together on the 1980s maritime strategy. If you want to look back into the end of the Cold War and uh, the way that the U.S. Navy in particular thought about great power competition, That is a tremendous resource for you and great for discussions within your wardrooms, officers, messes, uh, discussion groups. Finally, I want to take the opportunity to recommend our partners in the SimSec Podcast Network, the Bilge Pumps. You can find Alex, Jamie, Drac, and a pile of iron brew bottles wherever you download your podcasts every Wednesday. On that note, I'll turn it over to Kimber's men. You're listening to Sea Control, hosted by the Center for International Maritime Security. Aloha, shipmates, and welcome back aboard Sea Control. Today we're diving into a report on the Russian Baltic fleet with its author, Jonas Schellian and Anders Larsson, a Swedish naval officer. So Jonas and Enders, thanks for joining us. As a reminder, all opinions are our own and not reflective of any institutions with which we might be otherwise associated. Jonas, would you mind uh, starting us off here and telling the listeners a little bit about your background? Yes, sure. Uh, Thank you for having us first. Uh, I'm a researcher at the Swedish Defense Research Agency, and I have been studying different aspects of the Russian Armed Forces for about 10 years now. And my ambition is to be sort of a generalist in studying the Russian armed forces, but lately I've been sort of focused in, into Russian Navy, which has become my main field of expertise. Uh, but I've also done other studies such as uh, deeper delve into Russian electronic warfare capabilities, uh, which was a report published in 2018. Thanks. And for the listeners, we'll go pull that report and include that as a link in the show notes as well, because I'm sure that is a subject that would be of interest of interest to our audience as well. Um, so thank you again for joining us. And Anders, how about you? Can you tell the listeners a little bit about your background? Yeah, thanks again for baby to be here. Yeah, my name is Anders Larsson. I'm a commander in the Navy, and I'm currently working at the Swedish National Defense College. I'm a military teacher specialized in maritime operations and war gaming. And sometimes I do some uh, background, you know, intelligence. I'm not really teaching intelligence. I'm working with, you know, the background, for example, the Russian Baltic fleet. My career in the Navy started out as a clearance diver. So clearance diving, underwater demolition. Um, so, and I've been commanding officer twice, squadron commander. I've done a few tours, two tours in Afghanistan. Piracy hunting in the... Indian Ocean. And my last seven years before I came here, I was uh, head of uh, Swedish naval intelligence and counterintelligence. But now I'm at the school. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks again for joining us today. So, Jonas, I'm going to come to you for the first question. Um, I'm going to quote here. The sheer size and complexity of the Russian Navy often makes in-depth empirical studies of the entire organization unfeasible. Jonas, what are those specific complexity issues that you're mentioning? Uh, well, uh, the Russian Navy, or at least from my Swedish perspective, is a large organization. And instead of trying to cover the whole naval organization, it could, could be more rewarding to sort of... My point is that the Baltic fleet is a particularly good research object in, in this sense. And uh, because in, in terms of numbers of ship, uh, ships, the Baltic fleet is uh, the smallest of the four major naval formations in Russia. Uh, not counting the Caspian Sea Flotilla. Um, uh, and as part of this overall naval organization, all four fleets 
sort of share a similar organization with a similar set of basic capabilities, which includes assets and means to secure the naval bases and its adjoining waters, uh, search and rescue capabilities, uh, hydrographic survey assets, naval infantry, naval aviation, and so forth. So, so even uh, so, by studying this smallest fleet, you nevertheless get a sense of the composition of a, how a Russian navy formation works. But that's not all. Uh, uh, all four Russian fleets also include capabilities that you would normally find in the Russian ground forces or in the airspace forces. And this includes strategic air defense units, fighter aircrafts, ground forces, including tank units and heavy, heavy artillery. So really, when studying this relatively small organization of the Baltic fleet, you get sort of a cross-section of the armed forces as a whole. So I think it's more rewarding to sort of focus on the Baltic fleet and to, to get a glimpse of the whole organization. Thanks. And Anders, why is the Baltic fleet referred to as the former fleet? Oh, yeah. Sometimes it's kind of natural when you get the, the explanation I would say, you know, the decline of, of, of the of the USSR and the Warsaw Pact, the Baltic fleet is not peaking. It was fairly big. And when that happened, you know, they lost all their allies, most of them. The territory, they went down from seven to two major ports. And uh, basically two thirds of, of the fleet was if not scrapped, you know, not really operational. So the former fleet is actually the fleet that it once has been. I would say that's the best explanation. Thanks. Uh, and then what is the significance of the Baltic fleet's relationship with St. Petersburg? Yeah, the relationship is uh, it's historically because St. Petersburg is, you know, the, the, the capital where the Tsar lived. And when they... Uh, started the, the Russian fleet at May the 18th, I think 1703, correct me if I'm wrong. You know, they were, they were actually made to protect St. Petersburg. So they have a, a very strong hi historical relationship and to some extent they still have. And also St. Petersburg is also, and still is, is and it's growing bigger and bigger, the educational, they have the Naval Academy, they have the, 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 the naval staff. So the Baltic fleet has very, very strong relationships with uh, St. Petersburg historically and even today. But as a naval base, Baltisk is much more important from a warfighting standpoint. Thanks. And uh, yeah, Jonas, did you have anything to add either on uh, why the Baltic fleet is referred to as a former fleet or the significance of the relationship with St. Petersburg? Anders put it very well, and the thing with the former fleet is it's actually a sort of a, a wordplay, because former fleet, the word former is very close, in Russian, is very close to the word Baltic, so, so it's a wordplay, and it's the same with the northern fleet, where northern is exchanged for strong, the strong fleet, so, so it's totally unofficial, but it still says something about how history has shaped its current role. Thanks. And then Anders, back to you. Uh, you hinted a little bit at this already, but what, what impact did the end of the Soviet Union have on the Baltic fleet? As we said before, they lost all their allies uh, around the, the, Baltic, uh, the Baltic coast, uh, and they lost their uh, the infrastructure. Uh, so uh, that would say, I would say that's the... Uh, the biggest change, and also East Germany and Poland, you know, they had their own, their own armed forces they can work with. So uh, the whole Russian uh, or, or the USSR military mach machine declined, but the Baltic fleet suffered more than, for example, the army and the air force, because now they're down to one ice-free harbor, which is on the peninsula, you could reach it by, you know, Polish artillery. And if you want to go to St. Petersburg, you have to run, you know, into the Gulf of Finland. So strategically, it was a very, very big difference for them. And also for those who doesn't really have the map on, on in front of them, the very, very important is the, the Straits of Öresund between Sweden and Denmark. 
because the operational area for the Baltic fleet is not only the Baltic, it's, it's also theoretically, and if you look at their doctrine, it's also the North Atlantic to go up and do things together with the Northern fleet and also the Mediterranean. And now they lost the initiative to control the Straits of Öresund between Sweden and Denmark. So we could talk a lot about this, but there, there's a huge implication, especially for the Navy, I would say. What would you say, Jonas? Yeah, absolutely. And uh, it's, uh, the, the, the role of, uh, how do you say, the, the, the Baltic fleet and the city of St. Petersburg have sort of evolved in symbiosis. And the big uh, geopolitically, uh, the situation in the southern east uh, Baltic Sea region is totally different now from the 80s. And, uh, but, but, but in a way, it's important to, to, to underscore that, that even if the situation is, is changed, Russia doesn't have the same kind of infrastructure and doesn't have the possibility to have such a huge fleet that it had in the 80s. It's it's not a less dangerous situation. It's just another type of dynamic because uh, Russia feels very insecure in this vulnerable position. So uh, while in during the 80s it controlled like more or less together with the Warsaw Pact countries all the way from Saint Petersburg to south of Denmark. So 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 it's it's important to to understand it's it's the dynamics that have changed, not the degree of the. Uh, if it's dangerous or not, so, so to say. Thanks. Uh, Jonas, Jonas, what are the three roles you've identified for the Baltic fleet? Uh, well, I, I try to sort of nail down to, to three roles. Uh, and, and the first is something that we've already discussed and, and that Anders expanded very well on. And that's the geographical proximity to St. Petersburg and how this has affected the Baltic fleet throughout the it's 300 years of existence, and, uh, and you can see until this day that you have uh, uh, that you have uh, certain roles, certain tasks that are sort of shaped uh, because of this, uh, uh, because of the the fact, as Anders said, that uh, we have maritime naval center of Saint Petersburg, which includes schools, research uh, organizations, and so forth. But one way, one example of this is that the, the two main train training vessels are operated by the uh, Baltic fleet. Another example is that uh, the Baltic fleet is very involved in the shipbuilding industry, especially when it come, comes to providing crews to ships undergoing sea trials. And this is not only for ships that are built for the, the Russian Navy, it's also for export. So it's very shaped by these relationships. That's the first one. The second one is is uh, what uh, is something that we've also been into, and that's the the changed ge- geopolitical realities of the South East Baltic Sea. Protecting the territorial integrity of Kaliningrad is a much more emphasized task these days than ever, and uh, this is something that becomes very obvious when you take a closer look uh, at the organization and the. Because the land-based component of the land fleet, uh, Baltic fleet, is, is huge. Uh, currently, it's uh, a full motorized rifle division is being set up in the Baltic fleet on the Corps. And it operates three aviation regiments, two air defense regiments. And this is not only to protect the naval base in Baltisco, in the Kaliningrad region itself. It's, uh, it's sort of an important cog in the overall defense of the Western Russia. And ultimately, the capital region. So it's this uh, territorial integrity part is has, is much more important uh, today. A third role is, of course, to conduct different types of naval operations, uh, predominantly in the Russian coastal areas of the Baltic Sea, but uh, but also in the whole area of responsibility, uh, which Anders told us about, uh, which reaches beyond the Danish Straits. Uh, but also to conduct regular uh, out-of-area operations. And as Anders told us, uh, they have contributed to the Russian permanent naval presence in the Mediterranean Sea. Uh, they have supported Russia's, uh, Russia's military operations in Syria and, and operating in the Indian Ocean uh, by Baltic Sea uh, vessels has become uh, much more usual, for example. So 
so, so it's, a, it's really a very balanced fleet uh, for both uh, Baltic Sea operations, but also out-of-area operations. I have to add, though, what, what you said, Jonas, is more than correct from a military standpoint. But I also think, which is very interesting for the Swedish naval intelligence, of course, that the Baltic fleet also has a very, very special role as a fleet because all the new uh, weapon systems, all the new ships, uh, e- e- domestic or for export, is being tested e- e- outside Kaliningrad. So the, the Baltic fleet, you know, even if they don't get all the goodies, everything is tunneled through them and all the missile tests and everything, because it's from a SIGINT perspective, you all know it, it kind of goes away for it, it reaches a long way, but they don't do any qualified tests in the Bay of uh, Gulf of Finland. And also uh, being supportive to those industrial and, and uh, weaponry evolution of the Russian fleet is also a very decisive and important role for the Baltic fleet. Absolutely. Except, Jonas, can you explain what happened and why in the Baltic Fleet leadership purge? I think that was in 2016. Yeah, uh, this is a, uh, a special or a dramatic event that sort of unfolded in, in mid-2016, uh, when more or less the whole Baltic Fleet leadership was removed more or less overnight. Uh, altogether, some 35 uh, senior officers, including the Baltic Fleet commander and his chief of staff, were sacked. And the official version of this is that it happened due to uh, neglect in several aspects. Uh, For example, the Baltic Fleet units were assessed to have generally low combat readiness. uh, And and the leadership had failed to sort of address misconducts among officers. It's not expanded on what type of misconduct this is, but this just generally. Perhaps the most severe severe accusation is that the leadership was actively uh, were uh, actively withholding information to the higher level of command. So, so this resulted in this very dramatic event. And studying this from the outside, it's it's hard to say really what has come out of this. Uh, the, the weekly, uh, of course, they, they got the new commander in chief, and the weekly journal of the Baltic Fleet seems to have. I had more articles concerning uh, how seriously the, the new Baltic Fleet leadership look upon corruption and misconduct and uh, stuff like that. Uh, interviews with the military prose- prosecutor officer is more frequent uh, and so, so on. Uh, but, but, but there's also an alternative story that at least one well-known Russian media outlet has reported on, uh, and that's, that is, could have been some sort of political dimension to this as well, uh, suggesting that it's sort of the result of a struggle between two naval factions within the Russian Navy. But again, it's it's very hard to say what is actually true here, uh, but it had a very big impact on the on the Baltic Fleet, that's for sure. I think uh, this is very, very interesting because I had the great pleasure of uh, uh, visiting Viktor Kravchuk, the former uh, admiral of the Baltic Fleet, Fleet, and I think it was 2011. So the Swedish commander in chief of the Navy uh, and me and two other guys were there for an official visit for three days. So uh, I've spent the best part of three days uh, with Viktor Kravchuk and his chief of staff and deputy. But that was before we froze the relationships with the Russian and and. As Jonas said, it's very hard to tell what's true. I mean, either they sent false reports about the operational readiness. Another thing is that they say that the new commander-in-chief, what's his name, Vladimir Korolev, wanted to kind of clean out the old naval officers that were kind of being in, being put in position by, by uh, the former commando, Viktor Kirkov or Shir Kirkov. Yeah, yeah uh, so and that's probably part of the truth. And also, and now I'm referring to my to my personal experience. I'm not going to go into details here on the pod, but he was constantly surrounded by, let me put it, non-military guys. And there we go into the Amber Mafia case that they were involved in criminal or illegal mining of uh, 
amber. So there's kind of three clues to it. And I think all three clues has some, some extent of truth to, to it because we went to dinner every night and there were some seriously strange people at the dinners. I mean, you would, you would expect, you know, the chief of the Navy, chief of staff, the chief of the Naval base, but, but there were some other guys too. Interesting enough. Thank you. Uh, Jonas, how's the uh, Baltic fleet organized administratively? Is this an operational command, an administrative command, or some combination of the two? Uh, it's it's the last. It's some kind of combination of the two, and it's it's a very interesting question, but it's really difficult to provide provide a clear answer. But my assessment is that the the, the Baltic fleet headquarters is much very much both an operational as well as an administrative command. To my understanding, the, the the naval command has traditionally had more or less full discretion in planning and as executing naval operations. Uh, but in 2010, this changed as the fleets were now operationally subordinated to the Joint Strategic Commands, the new, newly set up in the mili- Western Military District in, in the case of Baltic Fleet. Uh, and this, uh, but, but I think this was merely a sort of a decentralization of command from the Naval Command to the Regional Command and should not have affected the discretion of the Baltic fleet commanders so much. At the same time, uh, this also meant that uh, the Baltic fleet commander had to take orders from a general rather than an admiral, and that could have some symbolic effects as well. But it shouldn't be, it's still uh, operational strategic formation within the Russian armed forces, so it doesn't have a changed operational status. When it comes to the administrative responsibility of the Baltic fleet, the situation has definitely changed. Because prior to the military reform a decade ago, uh, the Kaliningrad region had a special military administrative status that was unique in, in, in Russia. This was removed and, and the Baltic fleet, or, or the Kaliningrad region was, ad, was administratively subordinated to the Western Military District. But then again, the fleets, including the Baltic fleet, has retained important tasks that are normally handled by the uh, military districts. And this includes, for example, that the new backbone of the new military, Russian military logistics system is not based entirely on the military districts, but also on the four fleets. So, so, uh, the fleets have retained control over the logistic parts of the administration. Uh, and this makes sense because all, all the, most of the Russian fleets are, are sort of located in in these isolated areas, such as Crimea, Kaliningrad, Kola Peninsula, and Kamchatka. So you have to have everything under one single command. So, so even if this has happened, that it's, it's subordinated to the, to the Joint Strategic Command in St. Petersburg, it still retains several administrative responsibilities. Thanks. And then how has the Baltic Fleet ship inventory evolved in the last 10 years? Well, it's evolved a lot, especially in the beginning. It was sort of the first naval formation that that really got new, larger uh, warships. Because in the years 2007 to 13, four new corvettes and one frigate was commissioned to the Baltic fleet. Uh, so uh, the Baltic fleet was actually a sort of early starter. Uh, and since the last five years, uh, Deliveries has really picked up because, especially when it comes to smaller vessels and uh, such as uh, small missile ships and search and rescue boats, uh, harbor tugs, uh, hydrography survey boats, and so on. Uh, but but generally, it, the the newly delivered vessels are uh, mostly smaller ones. So so even if the the numbers picking up, it's when it comes to displacement, it's it's still many of the larger ships, uh, when it comes to auxiliary ships, uh, are still 30, 40 years old. When it comes to future deliveries, we don't know very much, but we have some knowledge that, that small missile ships will be, uh, an additional three uh, small missile ships will be delivered in the coming years. And, and also new submarines, Kilo and St. Petersburg class will be likely delivered in the coming years. Uh, but still, again, they still relies heavily on, on auxiliary ships that are 30, 40, maybe even 50 years old. Uh, so it will 
continue to take decades until the low levels of procurement in the 90s are sort of reversed, doesn't affect the Baltic fleet negatively anymore. Yeah, and also you, you talk about the size, which is important. You, you go into to, to frigates and corvettes, but also uh, development for the last 10 years has also been kind of more multi-role and standardized ship. And you see the, the development of the ship's classes if you if you start with the Steriguchi and then go into the developments. I mean, there seems like they're thinking more, more multi-role, but big enough to handle C. I mean, you see the development of the Boyan M-class, which is actually a missile platform, and now the Karakut, the new development there, which is actually more efficient Boyan M, but with better seaworthiness. And I also think a, a big difference now, if you look at the development of the fleet, is lack of submarines, which for me is very, very interesting, and also the lack of MCM capability for place to conduct mine warfare. I think those two things kind of lacking, but we can talk about that later. Absolutely. Uh, Jonas, what was the methodology that you used for counting the hulls? There is an abundance of both official and unofficial information on the, going around the, the internet regarding the Baltic fleet organization and ship inventory. And, uh, and so, so there, there's plenty of information out there. But the primary challenge is old information from current information. And, and I, st- I started by trying to get a grip of the organization and then trying to uncover what ships and boats that was part of a particular unit. And, and when it comes to sort of larger warships and larger ships, generally, it's, it's, they usually attain so much interest. So it's quite quickly to confirm whether they should be included into this recreation of a Baltic fleet inventory or not. Uh, but it's more difficult to achieve this when it comes to smaller vessels that are part of the auxiliary fleet, for example, due to lack of information. But by studying so, uh, large amounts of press releases and on exercises and articles published on the Baltic Fleet Weekly Journal, it's sort of uh, nevertheless possible to start to, to reconstruct this ship inventory. And the fact that the Baltic Fleet operates in a very populated region, and uh, it seems that ship spotting seems to be a very popular hobby in, in Russia, it's, it's very helpful to using that sorts of internet resources, such as ship spotting homepages to, to, to get the possibility to sort of assess whether an individual ship is active or not. Thanks. Uh, Anders, I think we, now we can get to the, uh, the question that you just sort of mentioned about um, submarines and MCM or lack thereof. Uh, what does the combat fleet consist of? Okay. Uh, basically, this is more of over Jonas' questions, but basically, I mean, they're fairly modern except for the, the um, sovereignty class destroyers, you know, fairly modern with, with, the, the, with the frigates, uh, multi-role uh, Steriguchi, which are from Baltisk. But I also have some uh, older the Tarantul attack corvettes, as we call them. The, the thing I think is interesting is that if you look into the Russian doctrine, is that they say they s- themselves that they actually have two fleets. They have one old fleet, which is actually um, inherited from USSR, which is the, the bigger fleet, which you see basically I- in the Pacific, but also in the Northern fleet. And they have the light fleet, which is the modern fleet frigates. And I would say that the, the combat fleet of the Baltic fleet would be represented uh, what the Russians themselves see upon as the, if not a mosquito, a lighter, more multi-role fleet. And I think when you discuss the combat uh, ability and the, how they fight, one very important thing ex- besides mine warfare and submarine is that the Russian Baltic fleet will always fight the uh, same as we do. You ha- you, you have Air Force, land-based Air Force, which the distances are so short. So you don't have carrier groups. You know, you have land-based SIGINT fighters attack. And to 
to evaluate the combat effectiveness, you have to bring in air force because they can be, they can be, you know, you lift the, the horn and you will have them in 10 minutes. And if you're talking about the blue water Navy without the carrier group, you don't have any air force. But I think uh, to counting the hulls, I much less experienced than Jonas. So I think you should actually answer the question. If I missed something, I don't know how many actually. Oh, well, it comes. Uh, 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 my count ended at 227 hulls, uh, but, but then I, I just, uh, I just had all the ships that was had a displacement of 10 tons or more. So, so there, there are probably more than 250 boats, ships, vessels within the Baltic fleet, counting the smaller ones as well. But out of these 227. Uh, I think 53 is considered warships uh, or rank ships in, in this four tire rank system that they use, uh, of which the four uh, first rank ships are the largest and the fourth are the, the, the smallest one. And, and out of these 53 warships, uh, they have 12 which is ranked in the first or the second tire. And among them, they only have one first rank ships, and that's the, the Nastojevi Savremeni class uh, destroyer, which has been unavailable the last six, seven years. Uh, so that pretty much sort of narrows in how it looks right now uh, in terms of uh, numbers. And Anders, what did you make of the, you know, it, it looks like a conscious decision to divest itself of submarine capability, and I don't know how much of a decision it is to uh, divest the MCM capability or if those ships have just become too old without a replacement? If we start with the submarines, it's you need specialized shipyards and you need specialized manpower to build submarines. The Russians are, are good at building submarines, but I don't think that the Baltic fleet has been uh, prioritized uh, regarding the submarines and also... They make a lot of money of the export versions. Now it's official, so I can say it. But I mean, I think it's very interesting to know that the first conventional diesel electric submarine that could shoot a cruise missiles or the caliber system was actually the export versions to the Vietnamese. So that's very interesting. And, and now they develop their own. So I think uh, uh, the lack of submarines is probably based on they don't prioritize the Baltic fleet for the submarines right now. And regarding uh, mine warfare, they have the, the new class, uh, uh, Alexandrite, is that correct? I don't remember. Yeah, yeah. The, which is a, a fairly modern mine hunter. And I think they have a, talking about 16 to 20 of them to, to be ordered. I think there's only two or one and a half delivered. One, one actually caught fire. Uh, but all those qualified MCM assets are designated for the Northern Fleet to make sure that the ballistic uh, submarines can go out. Thanks. Um, Jonas, how has naval aviation evolved in the Baltic Fleet? Uh, well, when the military reform commenced uh, 10 years ago, it was a very initial strong focus on modernizing the, the Air Force, the aerospace forces. And in order to sort of elim eliminate double infrastructure, much of the naval aviation was transferred, transferred over to the Air Force. And this had a result that the modernization of the naval aviation generally were slowed down. But the last five years, the modernization of the naval aviation has picked up again. And this is also true for the Baltic fleet as well. And uh, when it comes to organization, uh, the Baltic fleet naval aviation has Rome the last years, they have reactivated the regiments that have, that were reduced in size uh, 10 years ago. And uh, they had a major uh, modernization of the, their main air base in Skalovsk during the years 2012 to 17 or 18, to 2018. Uh, so, so this also hampered the modernization process. But, but since then, it's really picked up pace and they have... Uh, a set of new anti-submarine warfare helicopters. They have new Su-30S and multi-purpose aircrafts, and they have all the Su-27 fighters have been transferred 
from from the western um, uh, western Russia when they upgraded to newer Su thirty five S aircrafts. But but they ha they have had these deliveries and and also uh, UAVs uh, capabilities have been set up. So so they have they have picked up speed, uh, but but initially it was not so prioritous ten years ago. So if you're not only talking about the the equipment, I would say that if you look uh, less than a 10-year perspective, they, they do fly more. Like you said, they have their, their ship-borne ship UAVs. Uh, they fly more and uh, they also have more different kinds of helicopters stations on the ships. Uh, Western countries, you know, they usually have like a frigate. They have one or two helicopters that's organic to the ship uh, and they don't seem to do that that much because they usually fly out of land and, and stuff. But you see, they, they much more uh, complicated uh, exercises and they carry much more, especially helicopters. Uh, and, and they're all being improved. I'm just waiting for the KA-52K, the naval attack helicopter. That would be, I wouldn't say a game changer, but start using it in the, in the Navy. Thank you. Um Jonas, I'm going to come back to you. Is there any sort of assessment regarding what role the fighters and fighter bombers attached to the Baltic fleet would play in any sort of real conflict? Because I'm torn between, you know, being concerned about them flying out over the sea. But I also think they would be very preoccupied with just defending what they have there in Kaliningrad or even St. Petersburg. Absolutely. It's as we said earlier. This pub, uh, uh, it's a very vulnerable location to have uh, aircraft. But, but you have to have you have to have the QRA capabilities on on place uh, to to go up and, and investigate uh, Western signal intelligence aircraft and, and so forth. So you have to have uh, uh, the capability, of course. Uh, but but it's significant that they don't place the most valuable, high value newest fighters in Kaliningrad, they place the, them in, in places like Desovets in, in Western Russia because it's, it's, uh, they don't want to risk that, that uh, equipment in, in, in Kaliningrad. But so, so, of course, it, it, it's, a, it's a, uh, the fighters are an essential part of the, of the air, air defense of Kaliningrad and the Western. And, and, but but they the really... I think the backbone is nevertheless the air defense system, the, the, the strategic air defense system, the S-400 that's located in the Kaliningrad. And, and the fighters are primarily, primarily for QA at this, in peacetime, uh, as, uh, at least. Thanks. And then, uh, Jonas, I'm going to start with you on this question, but I'm sure Anders has some thoughts about it. Uh, were you able to reach any conclusions about readiness from your research? Uh, well, very generally, one of the main priorities during this last 10 years of reform in Russia is readiness and availability of forces is one of the, the main goals of reforming the, the, the Russian armed forces. Until then, a large portion of the Baltic Fleet grounding coastal forces, for example, were KD units with equipment stored in several equipment storage bases around the Kaliningrad region. And, and this 10 years ago, this was entirely dismantled and all units left were, uh, were all active units, fully manned, fully equipped. And this meant, meant, for example, that the number of main battle tanks in the Baltic Fleet inventory has dropped from 800 to 40. Uh, so strong was the, the emphasis on uh, availability and uh, readiness. Uh, and I think this, this is something, uh, they haven't regretted this. It's very good to, to focus on availability and, and readiness, but they started to sort of uh, think a little bit more about uh, how do we do, uh, how do we, uh, how do we say, think about scalability, uh, scalability of forces, uh, because it was so, the focus was so strong on, on uh, availability. And also improved training, a larger share of convict soldiers and more modern equipment has also been beneficial to the, to the readiness in general. I think the readiness can be measured in different ways, but I would say the, the readiness of the fleet is, I wouldn't say it's excellent, but they put a strong emphasis on that. They have a lot of exercises, you know, just to test 
the readiness, small scale, bigger scale. And sometimes we forget here in, in the Western world that things cost money, even in Russia. And they have a better logistic system, so they don't have that, you know, constant shortage of fuel, constant shortage of food or, you know, the basic things. So the, the, the readiness is being tested very regularly in different scales, not only like SAPAD, you know, huge exercises. They do a lot of small scale exercises. And one thing which is very interesting is that there's this lot of missiles flying in the, in the, in the air outside Kaliningrad. And the Russians, they test their systems because it's the major test bed for all export and domestic versions, but also, you know, to boost, if not morale, so at least confidence, they shoot with with the old Tarantuls. They shoot the SSN-22s. They, they shoot, they use their missile systems regularly. And I think that indicates two things. I mean, they're willing to pay for it and they're doing it. So it's probably not excellent but i have to say to some extent i'm impressed because there's so much live firing thanks and then anders i'm going to come back to you uh, what's what's the naval construction capability resident in the baltic shipyards the bulk or actually where you can construct things is it's all uh, more or less centered uh, around st petersburg and uh, their shipyards are not maybe not famous for being fast uh, delays in projects or, or, but you could basically say that all the, the staple beds or, or for the ships are, are full. And so I can't really quantify the, the capacity, but everything modern is under, is booked and they're working on it. A few years ago, I read a very interesting article about that they had a submarine in, in Baltisk in a private shipyard and that was in 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 the press and as an intelligence officer it's very interesting because usually you're very concerned about maintenance for submarines this was probably some kind of low low qualified maintenance but the shipyards in st petersburg they're so full i mean they have to produce for export they have to produce their new uh, projects but they also they have to upgrade their old ships. I think the Baltic fleet is 23 years old, the average ship, I think. I don't remember. You, you may correct me if I'm wrong. So they have three things they need to fill. So, so the capacity is being uh, used. Thanks. Uh, Jonas, anything to add on uh, Baltic shipbuilding? Uh, it's, it's pretty much what Anders said here. It's, they've built lots of stuff the last 10 years, and it's not only for the for the Russian MOD, it's they're building icebreakers, they're building export submarines, they're building lots of uh, huge variety. Uh, and, and But the latest information in, in this is that the, the intention is to sort of trying to adjust the production more over to civil production in the coming 10 years. But, the, but then again, uh, Capacity of building ships have been more is more efficient today than ten years ago. So, so even if they start building more c- civilian ships, I think they're going to be able to ke- to to keep up a very good pace when it comes to to renewing the fleet's inventory as well. Uh, and I don't think they will do the the same mistake that or the, the there's still damage because of the the low levels of new ships that was added during the 90s and, and it's it's more costly to not uh, su- successfully uh, replacing all the ships so yeah thanks uh, just a couple more questions and uh jonas how would you describe the ground force that's assigned to the baltic fleet it's labeled a core but i don't think that size is necessarily analogous to western formations you and i talked a, a little bit about this off air but can you explain that yeah, I think you're probably right. Even if Russia, Russia often shares a similar terminology uh, with, with us, but, but it's not unusual that the Russian notion differs, notions differs from the Western ones. And in this case, it's it's a relatively small combined arms formation consisting of 
two motorized rifle units, one brigade, one regiment, uh, one tank regiment. And as I said earlier, they're building a, or uh, how to say, they are forming a division. Uh, but that's sort of the maneuver bulk of this formation. And then they have fire support. They have an air defense regiment and two artillery brigades, including one surface-to-surface missile system, the Scander system brigade. And and so it's it's as you say, it's probably smaller than a Western or a U.S. Uh, but still, it's uh, when when it becomes a a division within the Army Corps, I think it's at least ten thousand, twelve thousand, maybe more people in it. So it's it's. They have a very, a very, very big part of the Baltic fleet is actually ground, ground forces units, and and, and the addition to this, they also have a, a naval infantry brigade, and they also have naval engineers, regiment size, and other types of uh, smaller, small sized uh, separate units. Thanks, and then sort of the final question that we have. Uh... Can you describe the training cycle for the Russian surface ships? How is it organized? How long does it last? And then how frequently do ships pass through? Well, this is something I haven't had the time to really deep delve deeply into. So I can with confidence give you the frequency or time span. But basically, all ships have a regularly, uh, they have to pass certain tests in order to get to keep their certifications to, to, to be able to carry out the, all the tasks. The ships uh, are designed to do, uh, and the first set of tests are carried out when the ship's uh, ship is still moored in the in the military harbor. And uh, upon finishing these tests, the ships is and its crew is allowed to go to sea in order to finish the second set of t- tests. And uh, but these tests can, however, also be postponed due to operational reasons, of course. But, but and this, I don't know the regularity, but I think more than a year they have to sort of go this, do these certifications uh, again. And it, it seems to be some sort of competition between crews in this certification process. And it's, it's a lot of prestige in finishing this certification process in a short amount of time. So it uh, has that as- aspect as well. Generally, I think the quality of training for ship crews has mostly certainly improved the last decade. The, the, the massive technical decay that the, the Baltic Fleet ship inventory in the 90s supplied the naval bases with a steady stream of decommissioned ships to train ships in putting out fires and limiting the extent of flooding and so forth. So, so the, the sort of flip side of the modernization effort is that they have fewer ships awaiting scrapping to train on. but. But then they also have uh, invested in heavily in training facilities to train ship crews in different aspects of ship survivability. And, and they have one of these training uh, uh, facilities in, in, in Baltisk, for example. So they have modernized the, the training cycle as well. It, it's not too far from, you know, the NATO standards if you want to be deployed for a mission or you have... You know, you know, have different steps you have to pass as, as a CEO and his crew in order to participate in different things. And uh, we was working with a Russian uh, frigate outside the, the coast of, of uh, Somalia, actually together with with uh, the EU, EU Navfor, and we met the, the captain. And because they didn't have the internet, so we had to, you know, do it by voice uh, to make sure everything was clear. And and one of the first things he told us that he was very proud that because he was the first ship that got qualified. So by saying that, I, I make the conclusion that you need to get through certain amount of steps in order to be deployed, but there must be some kind of individuality. So if you're a good CEO and a good crew, you can kind of go ahead and qualify yourself to, to like a, a higher standard or a higher rating? Yeah, the reason I asked that question, I mean, my previous job was uh, in the organization that trained our uh, surface ships, and it sounded almost exactly like the training cycle that we use, so I thought was pretty interesting and amusing. Uh, unfortunately, we're out of time for today, but I'd like to thank my guests, Jonas Kellen, uh, Shelley, and, and Anders Larsen. Uh, Jonas, where can we find you online, and what are you working on next? 
my reports uh, or my report on the Baltic Fleet can be downloaded from our homepage, and that's this www.foi.se. And uh, you can find my email address there as well if you want to come in contact with me. Currently, I'm working on two things. First, an article on the Russian Northern Fleet for a Norwegian journal called the Arctic Review on Law and Politics, and also a report in English on the sort of Russian naval posture in the Mediterranean, Eastern Mediterranean, since 2013. All right. Uh, we'll look forward to both of those, and I may want to talk to you uh, again when both those come out. Uh, Anders, same question to you. Where can we find you, and what's your next project? Uh, you can find me uh, on the Swedish National Defense University on the homepage, since I'm a teacher here. And my next project, which starts Monday, is that I'm going to have, uh, I'm responsible for the general staff college, uh, general staff course the, uh, for the naval part. So I'm going to be very busy with the uh, lieutenant commanders and the majors from the amphibious corps for the next two weeks. So I'll be busy teaching, distance teaching, which is a challenge. But it's been uh, very, very nice to be here. Very interesting. Thank you very much, Jared. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, you know, my, my condolences to you. Those, uh, those lieutenant commanders are really a handful. I kid, of course. Um, <laughs> well, <laughs> well, thank you both again for uh, joining us. And to our listeners, thanks for tuning in. We'll see you next time.